Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the Scriptures. We're going to continue our series in Ruth here this morning, but we're going to begin with a bit of a recap. So if you missed last week, don't worry. We're going to go through the whole chapter one just very briefly uh, to get us caught up to where we're going to begin today in chapter two. Uh, This morning, we're just doing uh, the first 10 verses of chapter two. We're going to break it up between this week and next. And so what I want to do as we begin is just, like I said, recap chapter one and just get our minds wrapped around the different characters that we have seen thus far. So as we open up the book of Ruth, we meet a man and his name is Elimelech. And we find out that he is married to a woman named Naomi. They are from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah. The problem is there's a famine in the land. They're under judgment for the rebellion against God. And they decide instead of uh, repenting and encouraging the rest of the nation to repent, that they would just leave. That they would go to a foreign land and a foreign gods and they could escape the judgment of God. So Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, sickly and dying, that's literally their English like meaning, uh, Malon and Kilion, uh, they head to Moab. And they think that they're going to be able to wait out this famine, have a better life in the pagan territory of Moab. But uh, not too long, we suppose, after they arrive, uh, Elimelech dies. He is no longer a character in our story, other than his name gets referenced here and there. Well, Naomi is now a widow. She has two sons, and so naturally they get married. They have get married to Ruth and Orpah. And so they're in Moab for about 10 years. We don't really know much about what happens in that 10 years, except Somewhere near, I would suppose, the end of the ten years, we lose Malon and Kilion, sickly and tired, because they die. And so now we have three widows left, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And so sometime after that, we learn that Naomi hears, hey, the famine is over. There's food, there's grain, there's going to be a harvest back in your hometown of Bethlehem in Judah. And so Naomi decides the best thing to do is to send these daughter-in-laws back to where they came from, back to their homes with their families, and maybe they could start over, have a better start, get remarried, have children, because apparently they hadn't had any children yet. Both daughter-in-laws say, no, no, we want to stay with you. And Naomi says, that's not a good idea. And she convinces Orpah to go back home. But we get a little insight into Ruth in chapter 1 because she states, declares really to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And after that, Naomi says, well, I guess your mind is made up. Let's go home. And so from there, they head back to Bethlehem. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, I'm sure on the journey, there was a lot of mixed emotions, mixed feelings. What are people going to say? What are we going to do? Where are we going to live? Bunch of unknowns. They get back to town and the women come up to Naomi. They want to know where she's been, what's been going on. And so they say Naomi and she says, stop. Don't call me Naomi, because that means pleasant. 
Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she says. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so as we read through this first chapter, as we walked through it last week, we're just struck by how hopeless Naomi seems. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, but she has also seemed to lose her faith. She's blind to the blessings that she does have. She loses sight of the goodness of God and even believes that God's hand is against her. And so that's where Pastor Keith walked us through last week. How do we respond in times of difficulty and uncertainty? But as we read this, and I want us to pretend like we've never heard the story before. So we read this and we're wondering what's going to happen with Naomi and Ruth. Now they're back in Bethlehem. There's another glimmer of hope. It's the last verse of chapter 1 where we read, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So here's a little hope. Ooh, barley harvest, food. They came back empty, but now there's a possibility of harvest. I wonder, are things going to turn around with Naomi? What's going to happen with Ruth? I'm excited to turn the page. And here we arrive in chapter 2. And so with that background set, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're here to learn from you, to hear from you, that we might glean from these examples, that we might see your goodness and your grace, that we might be encouraged in this place by your word and by your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we open up to Ruth chapter 2. And in verse 1, our interest is even heightened a little more because we get introduced to a new character. Verse 1 reads, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so now as we read the story for the first time, we're wondering, ooh, who's Boaz? What role is he going to play? How is he going to intersect? Is he going to take care of Naomi or Ruth? Is he going to be the bad guy? What's going to happen next? Well, based on this description in verse 1, I think we actually learn quite a bit about Boaz. First, we learn that he's a relative of Naomi's. And that's all I'm going to say about that because that's relevant later and not so much now. The next thing that we know and learn is that he is a worthy man. A relative or a husband's a worthy man. Well, what does it mean to be a worthy man? This word that's translated worthy is actually two Hebrew words uh, in the text. Uh, gibor and kyle. These two words uh, come together. Gibor is this idea of manly and vigorous and courageous and strong. It's used when the Lord uh, comes to, to Gideon and says, You mighty man of valor. It's used 160 times in the Old Testament, and 145 of them speak of might or mighty men. This idea of strength um, and manliness is Gibor. And this other word, Kael, is the idea of uh, his character and his wealth or excellence or even uh, his uh, position. 
And so you get these broad words and, and they come together. And, and what we're learning at minimum, I think, here is that Boaz is, Boaz is a man of significance for these words to be attributed to him. He has status. He has a good reputation. He's likely both strong and wealthy as we walk through the chapter. The evidence proves that out. And even his name connotates strength. Boaz means in him is strength. In a couple hundred years, Solomon is going to build the temple in Jerusalem. And as he gives instructions on how this temple should be built, and right at the entrance to the temple, there stands two massive columns. They're about 35 or 40 feet tall. They're about uh, six or eight feet in circumference, just massive uh, columns that people walk through to enter into the temple of God. And in the text, they're actually named. And the one on the left is called Yakin, and it means he will establish. And the other column is called Boaz. In him is strength. And you have this idea of establishment and strength on either side as you walk into the temple of God. These are the words that are associated with Boaz. This is a man's man, and there's no question about it. And while all these characteristics that are embedded in these words, I think, are seen really in Boaz, the most significant characteristic of Boaz has not been named yet, but we'll see it in just a few moments. But first, the narrative goes back to Ruth and Naomi. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth says, Hey, Naomi, uh, we're widows. We're poor. I don't know where they're living. Potentially there was some sort of structure on Elimelech's land, a family plot. We don't know. But Ruth knows they need to eat. And so she asked if she could go glean. And thankfully for both Ruth and Naomi, God had already instituted in his law a provision for travelers, uh, we'll read in our text, sojourners, orphans, widows, and the poor among his people. And it was this law about gleaning. The law can be found in two places, specifically, technically three, but they're repetitive, so I picked two. You find it in Leviticus 19, as well as Deuteronomy 24. This is what God says how the people should handle the harvest. Leviticus 19, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's very similar, but with an extra emphasis on who this law was for. Deuteronomy 24, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Do you have an idea about how God might feel about the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow? He cares. He cares enough that he puts it instituted in his law to make sure that there's provision. 
In effect, this was God's welfare for the poor and the most vulnerable among his people. And the backdrop to both these passages that we didn't read was their own exodus and God's providing for them in their time of need. But I also noticed, just a tiny side note here, God's instructions here in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 don't tell the landowners or the field workers to go back, gather things, put it in a package, and then deliver it to the poor and the widow and the needy. And I think that's significant, actually. There, there was still an expectation, I would contend, a healthy expectation that relates to simply the dignity of work. And the idea that the poor would need to work for the food that they would eat. Now, those who had means were here called to be generous. There is no doubt about that. But those who were found themselves in need were also called to work to meet their needs. But we'll keep going. Look with me at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And so now we see the name Boaz again, but he's not arrived yet on the scene. She doesn't know who he is. They haven't met. I doubt she's even heard his name, but we're getting closer. The anticipation is growing. What role is Boaz going to play? There's also a bit of, I believe, intentional irony here in this verse. She set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened. It just so happened. She accidentally came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz that our narrator was so careful to give us background on in verse 1. And we touched on this last week a bit, so I won't belabor the point here. And we're seeing God's sovereign hand all through the book. It was there in chapter 1. We're going to see it here in chapter 2. And guess what? It's going to be there in chapter 3 and chapter 4 as well. But I was reading through some of uh, Sinclair Ferguson's writings, and he actually addresses this idea of God's sovereignty in light of narratives like Ruth. And he gives us a helpful concept that I I was just thinking might be uh, helpful for us to think through as we go through the the whole book. He describes uh, the authors of these narratives being purposeful and why they interject verses like 1 and 3 and give us this information. It says they're there intentionally. And, and these narrators are basically using the literary equivalent of like a movie producer or a sportscaster's uh, split screens. And the, the purpose of split screens on TV is to do what? We can see two different angles, two different perspectives. Or we can see two different events even, but then see how they're related or connected. And so we don't have this in TV or picture or movie form, but this is what the biblical authors are doing. They're using these interjections to give us a split screen where we can see what God is doing and working over here and then how it's connected and playing out on this screen of Ruth and Boaz in this case. And so that's where we see these little snippets of information that are being added in. I just like the picture of, yeah, we're looking at two screens, God's perspective here and what's happening in the story over there. So hopefully that's helpful for you. The sense of a holy coincidence, you might call it, continues in verse 4. 
And behold, literally it's lo, behold, surprise, who would have thought? Lo and behold, Boaz came. So just as it so happened that Ruth shows up in this field, it just so happened, behold, Boaz comes from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And as we read that, it may seem insignificant. Like, what do we care about how a boss says hello? We want to know what's going to happen with Boaz and Ruth. But I would say, again, this is important. Because this is not just a greeting. This is not just a, hey, how you doing? Or, nice to see you guys. Or, how's the harvest today? It's much more significant than that. And I think this is actually the most important character trait that we see in Boaz. Boaz is a godly man. Boaz is a man of faith. It's not just a greeting. This is an acknowledgement of the Lord's presence among the workers. As well as understanding or recognizing it is the Lord who blesses the people. It is the Lord who blesses the harvest. And so this is much more than a greeting. And especially when we remember what's the backdrop to the book of Ruth. The time of the judges. And if you don't remember, the time of the judges was not a pretty time in Israel. And even if it was in the early years, it was still not a good time. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what was right in his own eyes was not right in God's eyes. It was a characteristic of the time of the judges. But here we have Boaz. A man who shows up to his field. Who greets his workers with the Lord be with you. And even more, they respond. The Lord bless you. How many people today do you think when they walk into work are saying, the Lord bless you, boss. We just love you so much. The Lord bless you and the Lord bless you and everyone just is blessing everybody. The Lord be with you. I I think that would be rare in any work environment. But here we see that not only he's a man of faith, he's, he's a man of God. He's just simply a good boss. He cares about his people. The Lord is central and present in his work. And it shows in just the simple way that he arrives and greets his workers. We're getting close to the moment that we're looking forward to with Ruth and Boaz. We get to verse 5, and we see that Boaz notices Ruth. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is that? He notices her. I think it also speaks again to him just being a good boss. He knew who was supposed to be in his fields. He knew who his workers were. And so he noticed when there was a young woman in his field. And so he asked, whose young woman is this? And in our ears, maybe today it sounds a little chauvinist, but that's not what's happening here. You have to remember in their culture, there's no such thing as an independent woman. There's really no such thing as an independent man for that matter in their culture. Everything was tied to tribe and clan and family And so Boaz is just trying to discern where she come from. Who is she connected to? What family is she from? So take a look at the foreman's response in verses 6 and 7. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except... For a short rest. And so we're not quite to the interaction between Boaz and Ruth just yet. But here we learn a few things about Ruth. 
from this foreman who has only known her, presumably, a few hours, maybe six or seven. A couple of things I noticed. Number one, being a Moabite was a big deal. She's a foreigner. He says it twice in half of a verse. She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. Did you hear me? From the country of Moab. This was unusual. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She stuck out. She was noticed. They were outsiders and they were enemies of the people of God. I also noticed that Ruth understood her status as an outsider. She didn't presume to enter the field uninvited. Now we just saw God had already made provisions in his law. But she didn't presume that she could benefit as she was an outsider. And so what does she do? She asked permission before she enters the field. And I think that reveals something here about Ruth's character. And then when she did receive permission, what did she do? She went right to work. And she's been working up until now. She only took a little rest, the foreman said. We don't know what time this is, but it's close, I believe, to the afternoon lunch hour. And she probably started right at the crack of the dawn with those reapers. And so here she is. She's been working for five, six, seven hours. She's barely had any rest. And so now Boaz is putting all these things together. We learn that he's heard this story, but he didn't know who the woman was. But we're not quite there yet. and actually won't be till next week. But she's an outsider, but she's gracious, she asked permission, and she's a hard worker, I'm sure this definitely caught the attention of Boaz. So he calls her over, and we finally get to his first words to her. It's verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field, that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I'm not sure in our context that we can understand the significance of the words that Boaz has just spoken to Ruth. What he has just told Ruth is certainly life-changing, if not life-saving, to her ears. And so I want to, again, point out a few important aspects of Boaz's short speech. He calls her daughter. My daughter, listen. Come close. Listen, my daughter. And so people have asked, well, why does he call her daughter? And there's certainly an aspect of he was older than her. And and maybe significantly so. And he alludes to that later in the book, I believe. And so some commentator says, yeah, it's like a father to a daughter, and he's just, you know, calling her daughter because of the age gap. And, and that could certainly be a factor there. But I'm not convinced that that's the only reason that he calls her my daughter. And part of that is because of the next few reasons. You'll notice all throughout this book, what you keep hearing with Ruth is the word Moab, Moabite, and foreigner. She has consistently identified that. It just happened twice in half a verse. She identifies herself as a foreigner, as an outsider. Both what people are describing her as and as she 
sees herself as is outsider, foreigner, Moabite. And based on what he's going to say next, or said next, I think Boaz is actually speaking in a profound way to comfort her. By saying, my daughter, I believe he's starting to shift her thinking. He's starting to pull her in. He's starting to say, you're with me. You're not an outsider, my daughter. I'm bringing you to the inside. Why do I think this? He tells her to stick close. He says, stick close to my young women. And this, but keep close, this same verb is found in chapter 1. And it's used when the author describes Ruth clinging to Naomi. Same verb. Ruth clung to Naomi. What I think Boaz is doing is saying, as close as you cling to Naomi, your mother-in-law, cling to me. Cling to my women. Cling, you're on the inside. Cling to him as tightly as she has clung to Naomi. And then not only that, he continues. He offers the same status of his young women among the reapers. Not waiting on the outskirts. Not waiting for them to leave the field as would be the custom. Not staying in the corners. But he gives them status of his household. He says, you can go wherever my young women go. Follow them. Stay close. He's provided protection for her. He warns his workers. He's like, the Lord is watching. Remember, he's with us. Also, don't touch her. Don't look at her the wrong way. She is under my protection. Don't touch, bother, harass her. Instead of having her draw water for his men, which would have been customary for a foreigner to do, he says, you go drink from the same water that my young men drink from. He's bringing her to the inside. And lastly, we should be sure to point out that none of this was required of Boaz. Boaz had to do none of this. Sure, there was a law that she could reap. None of this is in the law. This is beyond that. She was a foreign widow who would have no expectation of this kind of treatment. And so how does Ruth respond to Boaz? It's our last verse here this morning but we're not quite done yet. She's amazed. She's astonished. She falls down. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz is going to give his own answer, but we're going to put that on next week. I think we have enough information. I can confidently, I am going to confidently tell you the reason this morning. And we don't even need to look at Boaz's answer. He will verify some of the things that we look at here in just our last few moments. Why have I found favor? Well, some will point to Ruth was probably attractive. She was younger. She was single. And Boaz seemed to be single. And so maybe he's doing all of this because she's a good-looking lady. Could be. Maybe she does look good. The thing is, there's nothing in the text that says anything close to that. 
being a motivation. Could have been a bonus, but I don't think it's the prime motivation. So what is? I think the explanation is clear, and it's one word. Character. It's character. Whose character? I think it's the character of Ruth, and it's the character of Boaz that have come together here to produce this treatment. Okay, Both the characters of Ruth and the character of Boaz, they've taken center stage, right? This has been the main point that we've been looking up to. And if we were to run through and just list the characteristics that we've already talked about, right? We've seen Ruth as humble, as diligent, as grateful, as loyal, as brave. An outsider showing up in Israel, showing up in a field. Like these are the character traits that Boaz is seeing and hearing about Ruth. But then we've also seen from Boaz, he is compassionate. He is fair and just, not only to his own workers and his own household, but the foreigners. He is generous. He is virtuous. He is full of integrity. He is protects and provides. In short, we might say he is worthy where we began. He is Gibor Chayel. But do you know who else is called worthy? Ruth. Ruth is called worthy. But we have to jump to chapter 3, just one verse. She is called the same thing without the manliness attached to it. Only one word, not two, describing Ruth, Chael. It's in chapter 3, verse 11. This is Boaz talking to Ruth. And now, my daughter, still, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy Chael woman. I don't know if you know, and I didn't really know until this week, that in the Hebrew Bible, you know, the order is different. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. Do you know what the last chapter of Proverbs is? It's Proverbs chapter 31. And do you know what the bulk of Proverbs chapter 31 talks about? The excellent wife. And excellent, do you know what word that is? Chayel. It's the same word. Worthy or excellent. An excellent wife. A worthy wife. Who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. And the, the very last verse of Proverbs reads, Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And what's happening in Ruth chapter 3? She's receiving the fruit of her hands. She is described as worthy and excellent. And her works are being praised in the gates by the whole town. What's remarkable about this to me is that it seems like Ruth is modeling Proverbs 31. An excellent wife, a faithful wife, a godly wife. Except She's hundreds of years before the book was written. As a foreign widow, she is showing what it looks like to be godly to God's own people. And Boaz is attracted to godliness. When I look at these lists, 
of character traits. I'm not seeing, oh, this is what a godly woman needs to be, and this is what a godly man needs to be. Certainly, that is true. But I would say that this is just a picture of godly character. Of godly character. Godliness is going to express itself differently at different times and in different places. But we can be confident that godliness is more about our character than our position, than our status, than our ethnicity, than our bank account, than our gender, than our location on the globe, or anything else. Godly character is what counts. And so here is where we have to turn and ask, well, when people look at me, what do they see? Do they see someone who is, as Paul says, walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called? He wrote in Greek, so I can't say it's the same word. Walk worthy. But I think it carries the same idea. Do they see someone who is humble, someone who is diligent in their work, someone who counts their blessings more than their complaints, someone who looks out for the outcast, the lonely, the poor, and the needy? Do they see someone who trusts in the Lord no matter their circumstances, someone who has praise on their lips rather than grumbling or complaining or worse? Ruth and Boaz, each in their own way, are showing us what godliness looks like by the way they are living their lives. And this may seem like a little bit of a random question, but bear with me. Do you know what day of the week that this interaction happens on? Some of you are scanning chapter 1. It doesn't say. It doesn't say, but you know what day I know it's not on? The Sabbath. Because they'd be at home. Resting. And here's why I bring that up. And maybe it's my own projection. But for some reason, I think we have a tendency to reserve our godliness for Sunday morning. That we can put on the clothes and the smile and the attitude and the handshake. And then we think, well, yeah, I'm godly. I went to church and smiled at some people today. But that's not character. That doesn't describe godliness. That describes a mask. That describes a show. But what Ruth and Boaz are showing us is character. Character is consistent. Character is developed and grown. Character is revealed out in the fields on a hot afternoon. It's revealed on the job site or in the office or in the home. Our true character tends to be revealed more on a Monday afternoon or a Friday night than it does on a Sunday morning. It's revealed by the way we treat and talk about others as well as how we talk about ourselves. It's revealed by how often our actions match our words, by whether or not we can be trusted. How we react when things don't go our way, how we spend our time, and how we spend our money. Character is revealed when you are alone and there is no one there to watch. And godly character doesn't just appear, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's grounded in the very character of God himself. It's fueled 
by a faith that follows after him. Both Ruth and Boaz are showing us from very two different vantage points what it looks like to walk every day by faith. But before we end, there's one more aspect of this story that I want to highlight. What we've seen so far is not only just a study in godly character, but it's a picture of God's grace. This is a thing that really starts to develop here. And it's going to continue and grow throughout the rest of the book. Think about Ruth. Ruth was an outsider, a foreigner with no status, no prospects. She was incapable of surviving on her own. She went out looking for someone to show her favor. And so in God's sovereign plan, he brought her to a worthy man from the tribe of Judah and the city of Bethlehem. This man, Boaz, extends his favor to Ruth. She is hungry and he gives her food. She is thirsty and he gives her drink. But he doesn't merely provide for her physical needs. He calls her his daughter. He extends her the privileges of his household and status. None of this favor was expected. None of this favor was earned. None of this favor was owed. Yet Boaz, in his compassion and grace, brought this outsider into his fold. This is only the beginning of an even bigger unfolding of grace that is coming towards Ruth that we'll see over the next few weeks. But I hope that you can start to catch a glimpse of how this is a beautiful picture of God's grace towards us. We were foreigners, outsiders, enemies of God. No status, no prospects, incapable of saving ourselves. Yet in God's sovereign plan, he sent the worthiest of all men, his son, Jesus Christ, from the tribe of Judah and the city of Bethlehem to meet our greatest need. To those who are hungry, He offers the bread of life. To those who are thirsty, he offers living water. To those who are weary, he offers comfort and rest. To those who are outside, he offers a seat in his home and at his table. When we realize this, We ought to be falling down on our face, asking the same question, why? Why would you show me such favor as an outsider, a foreigner, an enemy of you, God? And the answer is simply grace. We shouldn't expect it. We haven't earned it. It certainly isn't owed. But it's by his grace His richest, lavish grace and his kindness poured on us. Boaz is going to continue to give us a glimpse of Christ. As we walk through the rest of this story, it's going to get even better for Ruth. But you'll have to keep coming back to hear the rest of the story. Last thing, three takeaways Just put them up on the screen. Trust in God's sovereignty, but don't neglect your responsibilities. Pursue godly character in the field 
as much as in the church. And lastly, depend on God's grace while you walk humbly by faith. This is what godly character looks like, even in our world today. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that this is not a story about us. It's not even so much a story about Ruth and Boaz. It's a story about you. It's a story about your grace, your mercy, and your love. It's a story about humility and gratefulness for what it looks like to walk humbly with our God. May we internalize these truths and live them out through your power, we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.